May 28, 1983, at the Christiana Lodge in Vail, Colorado, Susan and I consummated our covenant with a sacrament of physical communion in the sanctuary of our shared temple of one flesh. In Scripture, that's the thing that means that you're married. And according to Scripture, it's a picture to teach us of Christ and His church, and even more, God and humanity. Stripped naked, I offered all my heart, soul, mind, and strength like a living sacrifice placed upon the altar waiting to be consumed by the eternal fire that is unquenchable love. I offered my strength and I offered my weakness, my, my shame. I surrendered that very place on my body that had been covered ever since the very first Adam took leaves and covered that private place in confusion and fear, that place that expressed a profound longing that displayed the incompleteness, not only in my flesh, but in my soul, that place from which came seed, seed to be implanted in broken soil, the broken soil of her body, seed that would die and then miraculously be transformed into Jonathan, Elizabeth, Rebecca, and Coleman, I presented myself a living sacrifice in the sacrament of communion, consummating the covenant, forming one body in the place where there had once been two, and it was ecstasy. And then I fell asleep. And when I awoke, I found this letter. I want to read it to you. I found this, this letter. Um, this, this, is, this is the letter, and uh, it says this. Wow, I had a really good time. Enclosed, you'll find a check for $41.37. I make about $413.70 a week at the dentist's office after taxes and Social Security. Is it 10% of gross or net? Let me know. I'll see you next week, same time, same place. You can count on me, except, of course, the weekend of the 7th. Every year, me and the girls, we plan this wild little weekend in Miami. You understand. Thanks again. Love, Susan. Now, it's hard for me to express the mixture of pain and logging, the, the mixture of, of, of rage and burning desire uh, that I felt at, at that moment when I read the, the letter. My heart began to beat uncontrollably in my chest. I, I felt as if it were swelling and about to burst, and, and then it did. It, it literally ripped in two, and blood flowed from my chest like a fountain. It flowed from my broken body, and it flowed off the altar that was once a bed, out of the altar, into the floor, onto the street, and it became a river that filled the land to the depths of a horse's bridle. And then blood began to fall from from the sky like burning wine poured from bowls in the heavens and the blood burned. True story. Didn't actually happen to me, <laughs> but something like that did happen to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would show us your heart and that we would have courage 
to see and to believe who you are and that you're good. Lord God, give us the courage to believe the gospel. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name through the power of your spirit, amen. Revelation chapter two, verse 18. This is our seventh sermon uh, from the Revelation, and it's the middle letter of the seven letters that are sent to the angels of the seven churches, and I think this is kind of the heart of the matter. Verse 18, and to the angel, I untucked my shirt, done baptizing, so I'm just be comfortable. Um, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now Thyatira was located between Pergamum and Sardis on that journey through the seven churches, number four up there on the map. It was the smallest of the seven cities and yet it receives the longest letter. It was known for the manufacture of purple dye. You may remember Lydia in the book of Acts who was a seller of purple. She came from Thyatira and remember she received the word from the Apostle Paul and became the mother of the church in Europe and also really in in Asia. Thyatira was known for purple and it was known for a temple uh, to, to the god Apollos who the Greeks believed was the sun god and also the son of God who they of course called Zeus. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, remember his face shines like the sun, and whose feet are like burnished bronze, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works, Thyatira, exceed the first, or angel of Thyatira, they exceed the first, but I have this, I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority, akousia, also translated power, power over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received akousia, power, authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse, verse 23, and I, Jesus, will strike her children dead. Wow! What happened to Jesus, meek and mild? Jesus who said, let suffer the little children come unto me because such is the kingdom of God. Jesus, the, the word of God, uh, the, the word of God who makes it clear in Deuteronomy 24, I quote, children shall not be put to death because of their fathers. 
Each one shall be put to death for his own sins. That's weirdly comforting and terrifying all at once, isn't it? You won't be put to death for your father's sins. You will be put to death for your own sins. Well, anyway, this mix of desire and apparent rage in Jesus is a bit shocking, isn't it? I mean, he gives these folks this incredible compliment and then rails against them for tolerating this woman and her teaching. This teaching which leads people into sexual immorality and some form of idolatry. Sexual immorality is such a terrifying term. I know it's filling you with terror right now because we don't know what it is. We're each sexual creatures. And the very first commandment before the fall is be fruitful and multiply. And scientific evidence shows that that involves some kind of sexual relation and sexual desire. Uh, we're each sexual creatures. I, you know, life is sexually transmitted. Yeah, yeah, diseases are, but life is sexually transmitted. And so commands about sex, they are kind of confusing. And immorality is really confusing. Because what is immorality? Immorality is a lack of morality. And what are mores? Uh, morality is the mores of a, mores of a particular society. Our society just elected this man. He's 71 and she's 47, his third wife according to law. But by biblical standards, I think she's somewhere beyond three. We elected him right after the Access Hollywood tape came out in which he brags about seducing women while being married, uh, newly married to this uh, supermodel. Before him, we elected this man who told us on national television, I, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Well, I'm just pointing out that moral, the mores of a society may not be the same as good. So sexual immorality is a confusing term, and it's actually not a term that Jesus uses. He uses the verb porneo, which comes from the noun porne or pornos, which immediately makes us think of pornography, which is a big problem, but that's also incredibly confusing as well. I grew up thinking female nipples were pornographic. You know, fashion magazines are like this exercise in showing as much of a woman's body as possible while playing hide the nipple. They are. I mean, so I grew up thinking fashion magazines were okay. But a woman nursing her baby in church? That was a scandal. Just a scandal. In seminary, my professor told me about some missionaries that purchased t-shirts for the topless women in this village in Africa where they were, where they were called to, to minister. The women received the t-shirts with great joy and they promised to wear them to church the following Sunday and they all did wear them to church the following Sunday but they had each cut two holes right here in the t-shirts so that they could nurse their babies during the long-winded sermons. That's not porneo! That's not porneo. That's actually a picture of the New Jerusalem in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 10. You can read it later. Well, anyway, porne doesn't really mean sexual immorality or pornography as such, even though it likely includes both. Porne, the female, and pornos, the male, both come from the verb pernami, which means to sell as in selling a slave. The verb perneu is the activity that a pornos or a porne engages in. Young's literal translation translates porneu as 
whoredom. And it turns out that in the vision we're going to meet a great porne, a great whore, a harlot, in, in this vision that John is sending to the churches. And remember, the letter, the letters are sent to the angels of the seven churches, and the vision is sent to the churches. The vision describes the victory that the letter requires or how it is that we conquer, how we overcome. Well, for some reason, we Americans, we get all stressed out about the beast, and we never talk about the whore, the great harlot. And yet in Revelation 18.4, a voice cries from heaven, come out of her, my people. That's got to be the voice of Jesus, and it's got to mean that his people are participating in porneia, his, his, or porneiu, his people in Thyatira, and also probably his people in Denver. And he says, come out of her, my people. That paints quite a picture. So maybe we ought to ask, what does Jesus have against porneu? What's wrong with whoredom? And by that I mean uh, uh, the enterprise, the selling and the buying, both the male and the female and the female and the male. What's wrong with whoredom? And hopefully you have some ideas already in your head about that, but, but I thought maybe I'd list a few that, that come to my mind. Number one, it objectifies. Or I think a great word would be commodifies. It turns people into objects or commodities, and when you think of it that way, it may be far more common than you think. I mean, what does she see in him? And what does he see in her? And what does she see in him? And what does he see in her? We don't know. We can't know. But if you're a man or a woman, you can guess because you are basically the, the same. She probably sees power. And he probably sees beauty. And there's nothing wrong with power or beauty, but if that's all a person is, you've probably turned them into a commodity, like a car. So if your car loses power, or if your car loses beauty, like in a hailstorm, what do you do? You trade it in and you get another one. It's a commodity. Well, no one is as powerful or as beautiful as Jesus. Is that why you love him? And if he were to become weak like a slave, and as ugly as a man naked and nailed to a cross, would, would you still love him? Well, harlots turn their tricks into a commodity, not a person, but a source of money, which is power. And Johns turn a harlot into a commodity, not a person, but beauty that is to be consumed. So if porneu has crept into your marriage and your partner is no longer beautiful or rich, well, you'll, you'll probably find another. Number two. One, porneo objectifies. Number two, it quantifies. I once asked my three-year-old daughter, Becky, I think I've told you this a bunch of times because I just think it's so funny. I, I looked at her and I said, Becky, how much do you love me? And her face just lit up and she said, I love you 12, and that's a lot. It was precious because that was the biggest number that she knew. It was tragically funny because many of us think that way. 
We quantify love, I suppose in some way we all do. And so do you and your spouse run your marriage like a business, a a place of trade? Do you keep accounts of what each one owes the other? Or do you constantly forgive, which means to give, like one body part gives blood to another body part, and that body part gives blood to the other body part? Do you keep a record of wrongs and rights? If so, there's a money changer in your temple. And it's the spirit of porneu. Love keeps no record of wrongs, writes Paul. No, no bookkeeping. Thyatira was known for its trade guilds. So to do business in Thyatira, you needed to belong to a guild. And to belong to a guild was to participate in the worship of a, of a patron deity, much like uh, the Masons uh, might do even, even today. Well, this woman uh, that Jesus refers to as Jezebel, the name of that ancient Israelite queen, Jezebel seems to have taught a little idolatry, that a little idolatry, but that was okay. Uh, idolatry is about transactional trade agreements with little gods that aren't God but pretend to be God. You know, every time I turn on the TV, there seems to be some new prophet revealing some new deep and mysterious insight in how to, how to get your blessing or how to get your miracle. It usually involves some money or some deed that will make God will turn a trick for you. You understand? It's not just whoredom that Jesus is renouncing. It's teaching whoredom in church and then calling it prophecy. Jesus said an evil and adulterous generation, adulterous generation seeks a sign. A sign is not the substance. It points to the substance. To seek the signs of God over the substance of of God is adultery and porneu. Nothing's wrong with signs if you read them and follow them to what they point to, which is the substance, and the substance belongs to Christ. It flows, it literally flows in his veins and his arteries, the substance. To the Pharisees, Jesus said, get this, The prostitutes go into the kingdom ahead of you. It's as if the Pharisees were the ones committing whoredom, while Jesus seemed to have such compassion, incredible compassion, for the whores. It's as if he's saying to them, you understand how I feel. You understand how it feels to be objectified and commodified and used for your power and your beauty, while men utterly miss your heart. Number three, Perneo objectifies, quantifies, and qualifies. It says, I'll love you if. Perneo qualifies love, but that's not love. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That means that love is not qualified by anything. Number four, Perneo seeks to consume love as if it were a commodity like mere bread or mere wine, like something you could nail down, you know, and then use uh, according to your own desires. When we come to the communion table, we're confessing that we nailed love down, turned him into body broken and blood shed. 
Number five, porneo seeks to consume love but will not be consumed by love. Porneo is control which refuses to be controlled. Porneo will sacrifice another but refuses to be sacrificed itself. I'm, I'm struggling how to explain all this, but it reminds me of a story that one of my seminary's professors told in class like back in the 80s sometimes. Dr. Mao was at a conference somewhere. And he decided to go down to the hotel bar in order to get a drink before dinner, or before bed. And, and, and he said that this very uh, attractive middle-aged woman was sitting next to him at the bar, and she struck up a conversation with uh, Professor Mao. After a time, he said, well, she explained that she and her husband had agreed to this open marriage so that each one of them might pursue their own needs and desires, and now she wondered if he would like to come, her, come and, and join her upstairs in her hotel room. Dr. Mouse said that he was extremely flattered because he, he really wasn't a handsome man. He said, I was extremely flattered. Uh, flattered. And, and then he said he looked at the woman and, and he said something like this. He said, thank you. <laughs> you are extremely beautiful and attractive, so, so thank you, I'm flattered, but, but I, I want to say no, because you see, I'm married, and my marriage is my best shot at tasting the kingdom of God on earth. And that happens when two people sacrifice their own needs and desires, and you see, that's my greatest need, my greatest desire. See, my marriage is a covenant in which I give all of myself to her the way Jesus has given all of himself to me. Sex is the sacrament of that covenant, and sex works. It doesn't just bind bodies, but it binds hearts, and not just for a moment. So while I'm stuck in the confines of this body, in space and time, I can only give all of myself to one other person uh, the way God has given all of himself to me. Only to one, all of myself, the way he's given all of himself to me. So if I give some of myself to you in this way, I can't give all of myself to her in this way the way that Jesus has given all of himself to me. Jesus can give all of himself to each one of us, for he's no longer bound by space and time, and he considers all of us to be his bride, his one bride, his one body. Maybe one day we'll be just like him, but as for now, I can only give all of myself to one other self in the way that Jesus has given all of himself to me. M my point is that love is not a small thing that can be traded in a hotel room. Love is the limitless sacrifice of all that you are. And so if we go now and try to trade little bits of love to satisfy our needs, it won't be love but the death of love. So sweetheart, thank you sincerely, seriously. I'm flattered, but, but I wanna say no. He said that when he finished, he was surprised to look up and see her cheek streaks with tears as she said, oh, oh, that is everything I have, I have ever wanted. My old boss, Don Muma, was a pastor of Bel Air Presbyterian Church. 
And one night he was seated at this dinner in Hollywood next to Hugh Hefner, and Hugh Hefner leaned over to him at one point during the dinner, and he said, come on, Don, just tell me, what do you got against my magazine? And I loved his answer. He said, well, Hef, it's just not sexy enough. Perneo is not too much love, but far too little. Perneo is not too much sacrifice of self, but the refusal to sacrifice yourself to love. Actually, you can't make love. Love makes you. Perneo tries to objectify, quantify, qualify, commodify love so it can consume love, but will not be consumed by love. It tries to reduce love to a drop in a thimble when in fact love is a mighty river. It tries to reduce love to a mere crumb of bread or drop of wine when love is the source of all things and the ocean in which we live, move, and have our being. Once upon a time, love allowed us to reduce him to body broken and bloodshed, but he will not stay weak and ugly for long. The drop in the thimble turns into a mighty river of life which flows through all creation. And love rises from the dead. Love rises from the dead in us like a seed that comes to life and we will see him as he is. In fact, that's judgment to see him as he is. All eyes will see him as he is. Uh, Number six, I, I hope you understand. The problem with Perneo is that it seeks to buy and sell love. You cannot buy love. You can only be swept away by love. You can only love love because you have been loved by love. God is love, and love is free. Porneu is not free. So it's not love, but the death of love. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. And the second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. I was thinking this week. Maybe he said, love your neighbor as yourself, because some in mysterious, amazing way, your neighbor is yourself. Like we are one self, one body, one bride. We are one self, loving God's self, with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, for he is our helper. He is our husband. You know, if you were to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, that would leave no heart, mind, soul, and strength left with which to love your neighbor. Can I say that again? So think with me. If you were to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, that would leave no heart, mind, soul, and strength left No heart, mind, soul, and strength left with which to love your neighbor. Unless God was in your neighbor. And then you could love your neighbor with all that you've got and at the same time be loving the Lord your God with all that you've got. Perhaps God is in you and in your neighbor like holy fire in the temple or the life is in the blood that circulates through the body. Uh, life in, in the blood circulates through the, the body and the bloods and the, and, and the arteries, the, the veins. I mean, if that were the case, porneo would be what? It would be like a blood clot. 
It would be like taking life and not giving life. It would be taking life and seeking to control life for your own ends when love is freely giving and receiving life for love's own ends. Jesus is the end. Jesus is the life. And we are his bride, his body. Now that will just blow your mind if you really think about it. And I doubt that I've explained it very well. But the problem with puneo, with whoredom, is that it seeks to turn love into something small and dead that I can control when God is love. And to truly love, he must control me. So number seven, I'm saying the problem with Perneu is that it crucifies love in the flesh. So, whether Jezebel was just teaching folks that God's favor could be bought with good works, the way that favors would be purchased from idols, or whether Jezebel was teaching some that they could serve an idol a bit and then still be able to serve God a lot, or whether Jezebel was actually teaching that it was fine to just have sex with temple prostitutes. You see, it's all perneo. And it's all the crucifixion of Jesus. It was the spirit of perneo that tempted Eve to take the knowledge of good from the tree in the garden. The good is God, and God in flesh is Jesus, and Jesus is the life. Taking that life is the opposite of love, and yet receiving that life as a gift is love, the very definition of love. It was the spirit of Perneu that tempted the Pharisees to justify themselves with the knowledge of good and evil that we call the law. The law is a description of love, but it's not love. It's love objectified. To justify yourself with law is to objectify love so you can use love when you don't love in order to pretend to love, to obtain things that aren't love from love who is God. It's to crucify love in the flesh, in a garden, on a tree. It was the spirit of Perneo that tempted Eve to take the fruit from the tree in the garden, and it was the spirit of Perneo that tempted the Pharisees to justify themselves and turn love into law on a tree in a garden. It was the spirit of Perneo that infected Jerusalem as she chanted, crucify, 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 and then we have no king but Caesar. That means Yahweh is no longer our husband. We give ourselves to the beast. Revelation chapter 17 will meet the great porne, the great whore named Babylon, but it's clear that she's not simply Babylon. In places, she appears, she's described just as the city of Rome, and in other places, she sounds just like Jerusalem. Throughout the Old Testament, did you know Jerusalem is called a whore and even a great whore? She's also called God's bride because her maker is her husband. She's God's bride that has made herself a whore. Isaiah 1.21, how the faithful city has become a whore. Jeremiah 3, where have you not been ravished, Jerusalem? You have polluted the land with your whoredom. Ezekiel has like chapters and chapters describing her whoredom with Egyptians, Assyrians, Babylonians, and now I quote, any passerby. She's definitely Jerusalem, probably Rome, and and, and indeed just about any city on the face of this earth. She's an economy of consumption. Just like ours. And she's dressed in purple. 
that she must have got in Thyatira. No wonder Jesus seems angry. The spirit of the harlot is infecting his bride, his priceless little church in Thyatira, for whom he has given himself and everything. So how will they overcome? That's the question. How will they conquer the great harlot? That, you see, is exactly what the vision describes, and that is what the Spirit will have to speak to our hearts, communicate to our hearts. How do you conquer the great harlot? Well, this would be one way. Excuse him right back. Welcome to Hollywood. What's your dream? So as you know, Vivian was a prostitute and a pretty woman. And that's one way to conquer, to defeat the great harlot. Perhaps that's the only way you could propose to her and turn her into a bride. And if you were the harlot, you could accept the proposal. Of course, that's Hollywood. Scripture is reality, and well, it's far more graphic and real, but, but if Jerusalem is, if Jerusalem, if God's Jerusalem is a prostitute, maybe something like that happened. Listen to Hosea. Eighth uh, century B.C., God spoke to a man named Hosea, which means he saves. Chapter 1, verse 2, the Lord said to Hosea, go take yourself, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Hosea's harlot bride is a picture of Israel. In chapter 2, the Lord says he will strip Israel bare, uncover her lewdness, take away all her possessions, and then he says this, therefore behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards. I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble, a door of hope. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call my, my Baal. That's the name of an idol. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. It's John that records that on Palm Sunday, Jesus declared, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw, allure, 
romance, all people to myself. And when he said this, John writes, that he was speaking of his death on the tree. Jesus is the door, and we meet him in the place of trouble where we are stripped bare and have nothing with which to purchase his love. We meet him in a place where whoredom is no longer an option. Unlike Vivian in Pretty Woman, unlike Gomer, Hosea's harlot bride, we actually crucified our bridegroom on the very day that he proposed. His body broke and his blood formed a river In Revelation 17, we meet the great harlot who has seduced God's people and turned them into harlots and uh, is described just as Jerusalem. In Revelation 21, we see the new Jerusalem who is also God's people uh, descending from heaven and she's no longer a harlot. She's a bride. How do you defeat the great harlot? How do you defeat the great harlot? Well, in the Revelation, the people of God conquer by being conquered by love who is a slaughtered lamb standing on the very throne of God. The lamb conquers the harlot with a covenant of love. Now maybe you're thinking, oh Peter, that's, well that's kind of sweet and and kind of cheesy. I did like that movie, Pretty, Pretty Woman. That was a pretty good movie. But Peter, Peter, in verse 23, Jesus said this, and I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your work. I will strike her children dead. Ah! Whose children? Well, I imagine it could have been some ladies, because I don't know if you've noticed this, but all children die. That's us. We grow up and we die. And, and all of that is according to God's plan. It, maybe it could be some ladies, but, but I'm guessing it's the great harlot's children, the great harlot's children. Revelation 17, 5, listen. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. She's the mother of earth's abominations. So what's an abomination? Luke 16, 15, and Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. What is exalt- what's exalted among men is our pride, which tells us that we can justify ourselves, which means that we think we can pay for God, which means we're trying to pay for love and turning God, who is love, into a whore. John 8, 41. They say to Jesus, the Pharisees say to Jesus, we are not born of pornea, we're not born of whoredom, and Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil. <laughs> that's, that's intense. Does Jesus believe that the devil can father children with whores? No! He goes on in the next verse to say, the devil is the father of lies, of lies. He's the father of a lie about you that is your false self, your flesh, that is your pride. It's that thing in you that tells you that you can purchase love 
with money or beauty or power or works of the law or, or even faith. It's that thing in you that fills you with arrogance and fear and makes you compete with the very neighbor that you are commanded to love. It's that thing in you that makes you intolerant, unforgiving, and ultimately alone. It's that thing in you that tries to possess love and so crucifies love. It's that thing in you that must be destroyed if you are to ever love in freedom in the very image of God, your Father. The abomination is not your attraction to nipples in fashion magazines. The abomination is your ego, which keeps telling you that you must pay for love. That tells you, in other words, that you must play the whore with God. Ezekiel 16, Ezekiel is commanded to make known to Jerusalem her abominations. What follows is perhaps the most gut-wrenching, mind-bending chapter in all of Scripture. Some old versions, they really, they change it. Try, they tr translate and change it because tr they can't stomach it. So I suggest reading it like in the e a literal translation, like the ESV, the RSV, the NRSV. But in Ezekiel 16, God describes how he found Jerusalem as a young girl abandoned in a field, how he cared for her and raised her, how she grew and became beautiful, how he proposed to her and showered her with blessings and gifts, but how she trusted in her beauty and played the whore, how she slaughtered her children in her lust, and how he will pour out his wrath upon Jerusalem for her pride. Her pride is worse than the pride of Sodom and the pride of Samaria. And then the Lord issues his judgment, and it is this. He will restore Sodom, and he will restore Samaria, and then he will restore Jerusalem in their midst, that Jerusalem might bear her disgrace and have compassion on Sodom and Samaria, that she might know, you see, that love is free and freely give it to her sisters, Sodom and Samaria. Ezekiel 16 ends this way, I will establish for you an everlasting covenant and I will give Sodom and Samaria to you as daughters, and you shall know that I am the Lord, and never open your mouth again in pride because of your shame, when I atone for you, for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. When I atone for you, when and where is that? Well, that was in Jerusalem not far from the valley of Achor, on the night that we all betrayed him, which was the day that he took bread and broke it, saying, uh, this is my body given to you. And he took the cup, saying, this cup is the covenant in my blood. In that day, in that society, it was the custom that when a boy wanted to marry a girl, he would go to her house. And when he would go to her house, he would, uh, uh, he, he would, he would say to her, um, I am preparing a place for you. And then he would present a covenant to her, uh, which, was, which was a blood covenant, a covenant of marriage, and he would pay the bride price, which was given to her father, and then he would pour a cup of wine that represented blood. 
and if she accepted his proposal of marriage, she would drink from the cup. Jesus makes an unconditional and eternal covenant which he pays for in blood. And when he hands the cup to his disciples, they know what he's saying. He's proposing. In the morning, we, the unfaithful bride, we all break his body and his blood flows, and he's still proposing. In Revelation 14, Jesus tramples the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, which is a picture of this, a picture of the cross, the, the blood that is wine, it flows out and fills the land to a depths of a horse's bridle. It stops the war horses in their tracks. Why? Because it burns away their pride. In Revelation 16, seven angels pour out seven bowls of wrath. Wrath that is wine and wine that is blood. It must be the blood of the lamb that is slain for the sins of the world. It burns away pride, which is the abomination of this earth. It burns away pride and the life is in the, 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 the blood. The life in the blood turns the harlots into to brides. The great harlot is judged. And then the bride descends and the voice from the throne says, Look, I make all things things new and we overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony Jesus like I was saying Jesus took the cup and he said this is the covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins drink of it all of you How do they conquer in Thyatira? They conquer by being conquered by love. They drink from the cup. To him who conquers, says Jesus, I will give authority. Ecousia, that's power. To him who conquers, I will give authority. Jesus is God's authority. Jesus is God's power. And to him who conquers, says Jesus, I will give the morning star. That's Venus. And Jesus, he is the beautiful one. So do you hear what the Lord is saying? I want to give you all my power. And I want to give you all my beauty. But even more, I want to give you me. So as a minister of God's word, I ask you, do you now take this God? Do you now take this man, Jesus, to be your lawfully wedded husband? If you come to the table and drink from the cup, you are saying, I do. Lord God, we give ourselves to you. We give the sanctuary to you. Lord Jesus, we give ourselves to you and we say that you are our Lord. And so we invite you to live your life in us, your body. And so, Lord God, if you lead us out into the wilderness, 
for 40 days, or whether you decide to raise the dead and heal the sick among us. Lord God, we offer ourselves to you, and we seek you. We ask that you would live your life in us, be glorified in us, for you, Lord God, are good. In Jesus' name we declare it. Amen. Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 1. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Be drunk by love. I think what Solomon is saying, believe the gospel and live from that place. In Jesus' name, amen.